Well, I know I already said it, but happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. It's a happy day. <laughs> if you're turning with me in your Bibles, we're going to start in Nehemiah 4. It might sound like a weird place to start for Easter Sunday, but... Today, I just want to talk to you for a few minutes about, about being stuck in the middle. I want you to just, as we start off this message, just start thinking about that. Start thinking about, about being stuck in the middle. Most of the time, that's not a fun place to be. Right? I mean, I don't know about y'all, but... Most of the time, it's not really fun to be stuck in the middle. Uh, like, what about when a couple of your friends or family members are in an argument and you're stuck in the middle? Anybody like being in that place? I don't. What about when there's like an ugly, messy divorce going on and the kids get stuck in the middle? It's sad. Like, that's the saddest part to me. So... Usually when you say stuck in the middle, that's not a good thing. That's not a place that I want to be. Has anybody ever put unrealistic expectations on you? Probably, I'm sure. They have on me a lot. Some of them are sitting in this room. Like I, I be careful who I make sure I don't look at them. No. <laughs> if anybody's ever put unrealistic expectations on you, then you know. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to feel inadequate. It's easy to just quit. It's like who you are and who you should be, and you're stuck somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, you feel like you're stuck somewhere in the middle of like where I need to be over there, but you know, I am over here and I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to be something else. I heard this guy was telling a story and he said he came off of a long flight and he was really tired and he got his suitcase and he went out and he was hoping it wouldn't take too long to get a taxi and he was in a very busy city. And he had heard all these stories about how long it takes to even get a taxi to get somewhere. And he walked out and he said as soon as he walked out of the door of the airport, it was like the crowds just parted and disappeared. And a taxi pulled straight up and he never even stopped walking. Rolled right up and the guy walked around and grabbed his suitcase for him. Said, need a ride? And he was like, what in the world? How lucky am I today? He's like, oh, before I left the airport... Back in Georgia, I bought a little lottery ticket and won it. And then now I got this, and the taxi cab driver says, Oh, sounds like you got the same luck that you're almost as lucky as the luckiest man I've ever known. He said, Well, who's that? And he said, Well, get in the car and I'll tell you about him. His name's Frank Fiddleman. Guy like Frank Fiddleman. He gets in the car and said, Well, who's this Frank Fiddleman? And he said, Luckiest man I've ever heard of. He said, but seems like you've got his luck today. And he said, why, why is he so lucky? And he said, man, he gets a taxi every time he wants. He, every time he ever 
played a game, he always wins, no matter what. He knows which way to go to miss traffic. He's never sat in traffic one time in his life. I'm a taxi driver, and I can't even do that. You're about to see. <laughs> He's like, so what? The guy was just, the guy's just lucky? Old Frank's just a lucky guy? He said, oh, no, that's not it. That's not all of it. This guy's got a brain like a computer. He can remember everything down to the smallest detail. He remembers every anniversary, every birthday. He remembers people's names. He makes them feel good. He, re- he never forgets anything. He remembers what his wife was wearing the first time that he met her. He remembers everything. He's one of the smartest men to ever live. He said, whoa. So, pretty impressive. He's smart and he's lucky. He said, that ain't it. This dude was an athlete. He said, oh, well, at what sport? He said, Frank, he played every sport there was in his high school and got offered scholarships to D1 schools for three different sports. He was good at everything he tried. Well, did he go play professional sports somewhere? Nope. He was called to the mission field and saved millions of people. Like I said, old Frank Fiddleman was the best man to ever live. The guy riding in the back of the taxi cab was like, oh my gosh, this dude. He was athletic and thoughtful and smart and lucky and fun. Like, wow, how did you meet Frank? And the driver said, oh, I never did. He passed away, probably saving somebody. I just married his widow. Have you ever been stuck? The middle's a hard place to be. Stuck in somebody else's expectations and stuck in the middle of an argument or stuck in... The middle is a hard place to be. What about an airplane seat? I've heard of people that like the window seat. There are probably a lot of y'all like the window seat. I've heard of a lot of people that like the aisle seat because they have control and they got a little more room. They can get up and down if they need to or whatever. I honestly haven't heard anybody that says, give me the middle seat. I love that good old middle seat. Nobody picks the middle seat. You dread getting the middle seat. Stuck in the middle. I've ran some 5Ks. Obviously, it's been a while, you can tell. I've ran two 10Ks in my life, and guess what? Everyone's the same. The start of the race is fun, and your adrenaline's pumping, and you're out there for a cause and a good reason, and maybe you're with some buddies, or if not, you're with all the other people that are going to start, and the start's great. And you know, at the end of the race, when you can see the finish line, you get your second wind, and you kick it and give it all you got left, and you know it's almost over, and you get, you've rounded third, and that home stretch feeling, but you know what part of the race is really bad? The whole middle. We're trying to talk yourself into quitting, and you're hurting, and you're gasping for air, and your side's hurting, and your legs are hurting, and you're telling yourself how dumb you are. Why'd you do this? What's the point? It's not fun. The middle is usually the hard part. children of Israel were about to cross over into the promised land 
And God said, I'm going to do a miracle. You're going to cross over the river Jordan, but I want all the leaders and the priests. Priests, remember they go to God on behalf of man, and they come to man, and on behalf of God, they're stuck in the middle. And he said, I'm going to do a miracle and stop the river, but I want all the priests, I want all the leaders, I want them to stand in the middle. How long? Until everybody passes through. What? Yeah, I want you to carry my presence and stand in the middle until everybody passes over. Look at Nehemiah 4, 6. Nehemiah went back to rebuild the wall. And they're all working on the wall. And, and verse 6 says, So build we the wall, and all the wall was joined together. All the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. Wait a second. He said the whole wall was finished halfway. So... <laughs> All the wall we built, halfway. So they were at the halfway point. They're building this big wall to protect the city of Jerusalem because it's been crushed and down and, and all their enemies can come in and out as they please. So they're building this big wall so people can't climb over and attack them and stuff. And they're halfway done. For the people had a mind to work. See, the first part was easy. Then the next two verses go on and tell us that some people came against them and they had a whole bunch of drama and people started attacking them to stop them from rebuilding the wall and they prayed to God and they said watch but verse 10 and Judah said the strength is of and Judah said the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed we're exhausted. We're wore out. We're pooped. And there is much rubbish. There's a lot of garbage. So that we are not able to build the wall. They gave up. They said, man, our strength is gone. We're wore out. We're exhausted. These people are coming and attacking us. And, and there's trash everywhere. Look at all this junk piled up all over the place. We can't build this wall. Forget it. Forget about it. They got discouraged in the middle. They got discouraged when it, was, when it was halfway done. Have you ever tried to clean out your garage? <laughs> Have you, ever, you, you pull everything out of your garage and you start trying to separate it and say, all right, we're going to donate this pile of stuff and this pile is going to the dump and then every time your wife makes a pile to the dump, then you have to go through that pile and pull out all the good stuff that she was trying to throw away to the dump. And then that happens multiple times. And you, it, you drag it all out in the driveway, in the yard, and you got all these different piles. And then guess what? Somewhere in the, around the middle, you start getting real tired of spending your whole Saturday on this when you could have been fishing or something else. And, and so somewhere in the middle, a lot of times you might want to just give up and, and just put it all back in the garage and say, you know what? That's a good storage spot. Not even worth cleaning it out. Well, I don't need to park the car in there anyways. If we clean it out, Malachi's just going to bring more stuff and put in there. Right? Like, it's easy to get discouraged in the middle of a great work. 
That wall was what God called them to do. They were God's people. He called them to do it. He sent them a great leader. He gave them support from a king. Like, God was all in it. But they wanted to quit and give up in the middle. It's easy to give up. It's easy to quit. It's easy to give up in the middle, but the middle may be the most important part of all. Especially if you're a leader. Sometimes we get stuck in a moment. Sometimes we get stuck on Friday. Remember Jesus was crucified on Friday and and we get stuck right there. We get stuck in a moment and we can't see the big picture. We can't see what it is that, that God wants to do. We get stuck in the middle of our past and what he wants to do with us in the future, our purpose. And we get so stuck on this life and even this idea that death is the end. All the Jesus followers, when Jesus died, even his closest disciples, they're like, it's over. They ran and hid in a room and locked their locked themselves in. In Acts, it tells us they not only locked the door, they deadbolted that baby. Felt the need to tell us that in Scripture to let us know how scared they were. That people were going to grab them and do the same thing to them as they did to Jesus. None of them even realized, like, because to them they thought he's dead, it's over, death's the end. But our God is so much bigger than that. Like we can't be stuck in this little what we think it should look like because our God's way bigger than that. Our God can do more than we can even imagine. We say, oh man, I wish grandpa could have seen me now. Well, I finally turned my life around and he's already gone. Hey, he probably can. To us, death is the end. Death's like it's over. God can't do what he said he was going to do like this. You've heard the story about Moses, right? How God called Moses, and it's an incredible story of Moses, and how God called him to set the children of Israel free, and he went to Egypt, and God sent plagues, and God did miracles, and God rescued them and helped them win battles, and, and then they wandered around the wilderness, and it's one of the saddest things in the Bible to me is that the ultimate goal The ultimate purpose was to take God's people and to walk into the promised land. And Moses never got to step foot into the promised land. Because of disobedience and because of different things. Like, I always thought that's one of the saddest things there is that he didn't get to walk in. Him and that whole generation had to die off. That was his goal and his plan and all this. And he... But then I realized, you remember the story where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and they walk up onto a high mountain. We know it as the Mount of Transfiguration. That was Mount Tabor, located in the Promised Land. They walk up there with Jesus 
And Jesus brings in a couple people to visit with them and walk around on top of that mountain. You know who it is? Moses and Elijah. Moses was walking in the promised land. We think because he didn't step foot in it before death, he never got to walk in that. But guess what? He got to walk in the promised land. And not only did he walk in the promised land, he walked in the promised land with the promised Messiah. He was with Jesus. Not only did he get to step foot in there, but he got to meet Peter. I'm sure that was interesting. I'm supposed to tell somebody today that whatever you think is the worst thing imaginable, God has a plan to restore it and redeem it. Who is Jesus to you? We might all come up with different answers to that question. Who is he to you? As Christians, we follow his example. Right? As that's what it means to be a Christian is we want to look like Jesus. We want to be Christ-like. We should all follow his example and, and we want to look like him. So this question becomes very important to us as believers. Who is Jesus to you? Is he a judge? Who did he die for? Whose side is he on? Who does he love? What did he do? Isaiah is one of the ones that prophesied of the coming Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled every prophecy. This is what Isaiah said. Still, it's what God had in mind all along. What? What did God have in mind? To crush him with pain. You ever been there? You feel like you're crushed with pain? The plan was that he gave himself as an offering for sin. So that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan was, God's plan will deeply prosper through him. He's the way back to relationship with God. And out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it. And be glad he did it. Wait, Jesus, after all that, he's going to see that it was worth it. And be glad that he did it. Why? Because he'll see you. Many sons. Be glad that he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones. As he himself carries the burden of their sins, Therefore, I will reward him extravagantly. The best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch. Because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his own shoulders the sin of the many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. 
That's what he did. He went to the cross and he made a way. So I want to spend the last few minutes of, of our time today looking at an unlikely person that got to be a major character that got to play a huge role in God's story. I want to just take a few minutes to look at this person and you might be wondering if it's Peter. It's not. Or maybe James, no. John, no. Look at Mark 16, verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. Mary was just a popular name back then. There were a lot of Marys that followed Jesus. Mom was named Mary. There was multiple Marys. So you had Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salami, the Italian girl. These are the jokes, people. It's Salome. <laughs> I apologize for that. What were they doing? They had brought sweet spices. These were very expensive essential oils and spices. It was one of the most expensive things they could get. Okay, so you just need to know these were very expensive spices that they might come and anoint him. Jesus had already died. It didn't work out like they thought. And they were still coming and seeking him and bringing expensive oils to anoint his body and pour out on him even though they thought he could no longer do anything for them. They were just looking to pour out and sacrifice because of what he had already done. I know he's dead. And I don't understand. But I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to worship. I'm going to anoint his body. Even though it can do nothing else for me. And I'm taking people with me. There's a whole group of ladies. And, and we're told that since Mary Magdalene was first that she was expected to be the leader of this group of women. And she's mentioned multiple times we're going to look at where she almost always had a group of different women with her. She was leading them on in. So I'm going to take people with me. She shows up 14 times in Scripture. That's more than most of the disciples got mentioned. Mary Magdalene? She got mentioned more than Bartholomew? Yeah, with a name like that. She got mentioned 14 times in Scripture. And listen to this. Eight of those times, it's with a list of other women that she showed up with. Eight times she's mentioned. And Mary Magdalene showed up with the other Mary and Salami and Joanna and a whole group of women what does that tell us 
she was a leader. It tells us not only was she a Jesus follower, but she wanted other people to get in on it. And I know some people that claim to be Jesus followers and have served God their whole life, but they don't bring anybody else. And I'm not, I'm not talking about just like bringing people to church. Yeah, that could be part of it, but I'm saying bring people to the God that healed you so that they can find their healing. Bring people to the relationship of a real God. Bringing people into salvation. She, she was like, hey, God healed me. I'm going to bring other people. I'm going to skip ahead because we're going to read some of this in, a, in John's account. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 9. Now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Had to throw that Magdalene in there because we could get her confused. Maybe we thought he showed up first to his mama, but it wasn't. He showed up to Mary first. Out of whom he had cast seven devils. Whoa, there's a little bit of her backstory. She didn't have one demon, she had seven. The number of completion, she was complete, completely full of demons. And you understand, like I read a lot of commentaries about her and a lot of things this week. And, and if you think about their culture and back then, they would think of any kind of mental illness, all kinds of things like that that we now better understand, they would just call it all a demon. But any way you look at it, she was very troubled. She was hurting. And Jesus set her free. He cast seven demons out of her. And Mary had a front row seat to the greatest story in human history. How? Was it coincidence? Was she just lucky? Like, was she in the right place at the right time? So she just got to be in on the greatest story ever? I don't think so. Was she the first one that Jesus told and sent out? Back in the day where women were looked on as second class, as like, nope, not a coincidence. Mary went from being stuck with seven demons to right in the middle of God's story, to seeing angels and the power of resurrection. How? Luke 8, 1. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village preaching and, and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. How? And the twelve were with him. So that's how Jesus was able to do all that, is with the 12 disciples. We talk a lot about the 12 disciples and his crew and the band that he put together. And that's how he was able to, to do all this ministry and how important it is to have the 12. Like, we talk about that a lot. But this second verse, I think we overlook that a lot. And certain women 
which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene. Out of whom went seven devils. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa. I don't know who that is. Oh, Luke tells us. Herod's steward. Wait. Joanna? She was with Mary. Following Mary. Well, well what did they do? Uh, and Susanna... And many others which ministered unto him of their substance. Wait a second. What does that mean? Go look it up. It means of their wealth, their goods. They funded the ministry. So when Jesus and the boys were walking around, guess who got them food? Who secured lodging for them to do ministry? Who made a place for them to stay when they were in town? And who? Mary and her crew of women that were following her around. For an example, Luke gives us here, just by listing some of the women that were with her, the one I just mentioned, Joanna, the wife of Chusa. Uh, that was Herod's steward. Okay, the, so there were a lot of Herods back then too. King Herod's this Herod his dad was the one that tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was born remember Mary and Joseph had to run away this is the son of that Herod this is the Herod that cut off John the Baptist's head Jesus' cousin probably the greatest pain that Jesus had felt up until that point we've, we've talked about that we've, I preached on that before how hard that was for Jesus that his cousin, the only one that got it, the only one that knew who he was, got his head chopped off by Herod. Now, his steward would be the one that would manage his real estate and he would manage all kinds of other things for the king. He would have been paid very well, dressed very nice, and be a high up person in the king's court, the king's steward. His wife, Joanna, was a Jesus follower. And this verse just told us that Joanna was supporting Jesus' ministry and enabling him and the disciples to do ministry. So King Herod, that chopped off John the Baptist's head, his money was funding the ministry of Jesus. Every healing, every person that was fed, Every demon that was cast out. This group of women get credit for. Why? They didn't. We don't have record of them laying hands on anybody. But yet they get credit for everything that Jesus did. Because they were making it all possible. With their substance. Mary Magdalene. Um, or Mary of Magdala would be a better way to say it. A lot of people just think Magdalene is her last name, and it's not. Well, that's not her last name? Nope. And Christ is not Jesus' last name, if you didn't know. Magdala was the city where she was from. Since there were so many Marys, they had to put her city on the 
end of it so they'd know who was who. But that's how they did it back then. They would either call you by your father's name or by the city that you were from. But Magdala was a wealthy city that was known for or their primary export, their primary contribution to the economy was dyes and textiles. It was a rich city, and it was the garment district. This is where if you wanted that new outfit, that, that expensive dress, this was where you would go to get it. This is where the kings would send their servants to shop. This is where you would find the fine clothing, the new styles. It was a rich town. Magdala can also mean a tower or castle. She was wealthy. All the commentaries agree that she was a wealthy woman. She had a lot of money. She was well-to-do. In some places, she's called Mary the Magdalene, meaning she held a high position in that city, in that marketplace, in the clothing industry, the fashion industry of the day. So she had money, she had influence. And it's weird to think about that because when we're talking about somebody that was possessed by seven demons, you might have pictured somebody underneath the 75 bridge or like the story of the demoniac from Gadara that we get from Jesus of like just a crazy person that's out there living homeless, cutting themselves or something. But this was a well-to-do, put-together, rich, wealthy woman in a nice city that was troubled in her mind. And Jesus set her free. And she used every resource that she had to fund the ministry. Peter couldn't fund it. She not only had money, but she had influence. That's why she was leading all these women to Jesus all these times we see in Scripture. That's why, that's why Joanna, Herod Stewart's wife, would have been following her and giving money to the cause. She was connecting people to the one that healed her. I heard the story, some of y'all might have heard it, about a, about a professor that took his whole class and he took a bunch of balloons and he gave each student a balloon and he told them to blow up the balloon and write your name on the balloon and they all did. And then he took all the balloons and he threw them out in a little hallway and he mixed them up. And then he opened the door and said, you got five minutes to find your balloon find your name and they all ran around and it was chaos and balloons were flying everywhere they're grabbing a balloon not my name not my name not my name and at the end of five minutes not one person had found their name and so he said now everybody come back in the classroom and made sure all the balloons were still in there mixed up and then he said okay now you got five minutes but what I want you to do is the first balloon you pick up read the name on it and then go give that balloon to that person They did it, and in less than five minutes, every single person had their balloon. And 
And then the professor told them these balloons are like happiness. We'll never find it if everybody's looking for their own. But if we care about other people's happiness, we'll find ours too. And that's what Mary's life, she was just bringing as many people as she could. She's like, he set me free. I'm going to bring you. I'll bring you and you and you. And, and if we get them food and somewhere to stay and they don't have to worry about that, then they can pray for more people tonight. And Jesus can preach to more people and more people can be touched and more people can be healed. John 20, verse 1. We'll wrap it up. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early. This is the same where we started reading a second ago, but this is John's perspective. He gives us a little more detail about Mary. When it was yet dark unto the tomb, and he seeth the stone taken away from the tomb. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John referred to himself. And saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we know not where they have laid him. This is the whole part where, you know, she ran back, said it, and then Peter and John have a race to the tomb, and John's scared to go in, but he outran Peter. He lets us know that. But then he's scared to go in, and Peter just comes flying by. Fat boy Peter, as John wants us to know, he couldn't run that fast, but he wasn't scared. He barreled his way into the tomb. and We read the rest of that in verse 11. Oh, excuse me. Then Peter and John got scared and ran back to their house and hid again, right? Because they, they were confused and scared, and it says they went back to their house. Verse 11, but Mary stood without at the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down, and she looked into the tomb, and she seeth two angels in white, sitting the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord. I want you to notice that, my Lord. That's what Mary referred to Jesus as, my Lord. Not the Lord, not their Lord, not your Lord, my Lord. My Lord. And I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and she saw Jesus standing and she knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus said unto her, woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hath borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Please, if you've taken him away, just tell me where he is, and I'll take care of it. I'll take care of the body. I'll, I'll take care of it, please. Just tell me where. I'm just looking for Jesus. And Jesus said unto her, Mary. Jesus called her by name. And she turned herself and she said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master, Teacher, my Lord. She was the first to get sent out. After this, Jesus tells her, Hey, Mary, 
Look, I want you to go tell all my disciples and tell Peter. Why? Because Peter had really messed up. And Jesus wanted Peter to know it was okay. But Mary was the one he sent to tell him to get this whole thing started, to get the ball rolling on spreading the gospel to the whole entire world. The Great Commission was not started with the 12 or the 11. Judas was gone. Like It was started with Mary. It was started with her. Before Peter, before James, before John, before Paul that wrote all the two-thirds of our New Testament, before Billy Graham, before Dusty Rutherford, before anyone, she was sent out. Why? Wrote down four things. She was grateful. Right? That's how it all started. She was so grateful for Jesus. Gratitude always gives. So that's number two. She was generous. She was grateful. And then she was generous. How can I help? What can I do to help? What do you guys need? Where? I'm going to bring more people. I'm going to be generous to the people that are in my life. I want to be generous to Jesus and the ministry. And She was grateful. And she was generous. Third... She was brave. The disciples were scared, locked in a room, and there was a whole lot of reasons to be afraid at that time for a Jesus follower. But she was brave. Only one disciple showed up to the crucifixion. That was John. But she was there, standing there with Jesus' mom. She wasn't scared to show that she loved Jesus. She was brave. And the fourth one, she would not give up. This woman just kept showing up. She showed up at the tomb. She showed up at the cross. She showed everywhere. That's why she's mentioned so many times because she was everywhere. Wherever Jesus was, she was. Trying to help, trying to give, trying to bring somebody else. Trying, even when it didn't look like she thought it was supposed to look. Even when she was hurting, she showed up. And she found herself right in the middle of God's story. She was in the middle of Jesus and his disciples. She was right in the middle of the ministry. She gave the boys food and secured lodging. And they fed thousands. And, and they cast out demons. So Adam messed it all up for us by choosing sin in the garden. And scripture calls Jesus the second Adam. And Jesus came and fixed it. And he sent his spirit to live inside of us, to empower us. He stuck his spirit right in the middle of humanity. What does this mean? It means he's stuck right in the middle of my brokenness. It means that he's stuck in the middle of your pain. He's stuck in the middle of your addiction. He's stuck right in the middle of your doubt. Maybe you're like Thomas. It, he's stuck right in the middle of your fear. Jesus places himself in the middle of humanity. Matthew 18, 20 says, Where two or more are gathered in my name, I'll be there in the midst or the middle. He said, Where two or more of y'all gather together, I'll be in the middle. Put me in the middle. I'll be the mediator. 
I'll be the go-between. I'll be in the middle. My spirit will come up out of you and be in the middle. See, the second Adam, or Adam 2.0, went into a garden, Gethsemane, but he did not fail. The first Adam, his greatest failure was when he took fruit from a tree. But the second Adam's greatest victory came because of what happened on a tree. Worship team, if y'all would, if y'all would come, and I'm gonna close with you guys playing a song because of what happened on a tree. John 19:18 says, "Where they crucified him and two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst." with Jesus in the middle. We always try to get out of the middle. And Jesus was trying to get in the middle. He jumped in front of the bullet for us. See, Jesus was both the lamb and the high priest who offers the lamb. They used to have to offer lambs, sacrifice lambs for their sin. And the high priest would kill the lamb and offer it to for their sins, but Jesus was the Lamb and the High Priest. And we see in John 19, 14 that it was at the sixth hour when they sent him to be crucified. And it was in the sixth hour when the high priest would begin the slaughter of the Passover lambs in the temple. To cover the people's sin. In Hebrews we read that he is our great high priest. And that he is easily touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That he felt everything that we feel. And he. That he's standing before God. Acting on our behalf. And that he is in between us and God. He's our great intercessor. He's the go-between. He is why we have relationship with God. Romans 5.8 says, But Christ proved God's passionate love for us by dying in our place while we were still lost and ungodly. You know what that means? It means while you were at your worst, He was at His best. He said, Before you ever loved Him and before you ever turned your heart towards home and while you were sinning and while you were looking at stuff you shouldn't look at, while you were hurting people and while you were, you name it, when you were at the deepest, darkest place of your life, mentally, physically, spiritually, at that moment, Christ died for you. He's not stuck on a timeline. He drew all men unto Himself as He hung there on the tree. So all of your darkness and all of your pain and all of your sin and all of your brokenness, He took it all. Mary said, my Lord. She owned it. That's who he was to her, my Lord. She was grateful and generous and brave. And she did not give up. 